You're listening to Cockadoodle News on WUSC FM and HD1 Columbia. Hello, Radio Land. This is Cockadoodle News. Make sure you stay tuned throughout the whole show because coming up, we have World Radio Day. We have El Chapo. We have. New introduction of. Or, no, not new introduction, but just getting rid of these nasty old police boxes or these emergency boxes. And sports and politics. Dun, dun, dun. It's going to be a great show, everyone. As always, whenever you're listening, if you have an opinion you'd like to share or if you just want to chat, you can call the station. Our number is 803-576-9872. That is 803-576-WUSC. If you can't read us on the phones, that's sad. I'm really sorry. But you can find us on all of the socials. We are on Facebook and Twitter if you... Just search WUSC News. Today is World Radio Day, and we are celebrating diversity of broadcasting and the peace and engagement in promoting it worldwide. As part of World Radio Day, WUSC exchanged broadcasts with a radio station in Germany. If you would like to hear both of those broadcasts, um, which were played earlier today, uh, you can check them out wherever you get your podcasts. At, uh, just by searching Cockadoodle News. In other news, NASA's Mars rover Opportunity has officially retired. Originally sent to Mars in 2004 for a 90-day mission, the rover spent 15 years sending NASA data and over 200,000 pictures. But more breaking, according to CNN, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman has been found guilty of 10 federal charges, including conspiracy to commit murder and international distribution of cocaine, heroin, marijuana, other drugs, and firearms. The whole shebang there. It was only two charges, I think. Yep. Um, That sounds like a modern-day American gangster. Well, he's... A Mexican gangster. I know, but I like the movie. <laughs> oh, is that a movie title? Yeah, like American Gangster, like uh, Godfather or something. Except it's happening in Mexico. And it's happening right now. Oh, yeah, and yep. it's happening right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty cool. The anonymous jury took six days to deliberate after two and a half months of trial. The prosecution brought 59 witnesses uh, to testify against El Chapo, which took over 200 hours. Good Lord. Wait, so was the jury there for two months? Mm-hmm. Good Lord. That, and that, that type of stuff, it's like you can't talk to the outside world, right? I am 97% sure that they were um, partially sequestered. So I don't think that there's different ways you can sequester witnesses, which is separating them. Um, and I think in this case, they sequestered them from the outside world, but not necessarily from each other. Uh, yeah. um, but that was done primarily for their own protection because this is not the first trial that has been brought up against the famed Mexican drug lord. Um, But -hmm. there have been several instances of trials that were not able to go to court because of witness and juror disappearances. Front row. The cartel. (laughs) 
Um, so, like I said, El Chapo has escaped Mexican prison twice. Uh, once it happened in 2001 through a laundry cart, and then again in 2015 through a tunnel that was in his jail cell. And then he was on the run for about a year, and in 2016, he was recaptured and shipped to us. Um, his trial concluded two yesterday, actually. Mm -hmm. And then he will be sentenced on June 25th, probably to a life in Supermax prison, which is the highest security that we offer. Wow. Woo! It's a lot. It yeah. was. I For would, one dude. I would not want to be on that jury knowing what I know that he has done and... Um, just the the things that they had to hear and the nightmares i'm sure that they now that's insane and and with. after everything he's done did you know that his wife is is still with him everything did you know that after the trial was over she just like smiled at him and he smiled at her and then she like touched her heart in solidarity with him crazy people wow this is his second wife I also read a report from CNN saying that he has fostered as many, fostered? I don't know if that's right. He has as many as 12 to 15 children. Good Lord. Wow. Man gets around. So, um, yup. <laughs> <laughs> tragic. That's a travesty, I tell you. <laughs> Security is... It's a it's a hot button issue. Yeah. So wait, the prison that he escaped from was that one in Mexico? They both were in Mexico. Okay. They were all in on they were all in on it. Like all of the uh, other prison mates and stuff, and some of the prison staff were all in on his escape. Um. Yes. And from from the videos I saw, you can go to pretty much any news source out there. They have videos that. Um, I believe were shown in court because this the his, how he escaped from prison was was part of the trial. Um, so they showed the tunnel, which was underneath his shower, I believe, and it was a mile long tunnel, and it just popped up into a house. Wow! And then there was a mice, uh, motorcycle there waiting for him. Wow! Great escape style stuff. It's crazy. It's like a movie, but it's not. It's not. What, speaking of security, USC speaking is of security, making yes. some security changes. So, maybe. yeah, um, last Wednesday at uh, during a student senate presentation, um, uh, Sarah Reisenberg, uh, she's student government secretary of safety, was talking about how the um, uh, they've been talking with USCPD and local uh, local police department about how uh, they're thinking about trying to. Um, phase out the blue light police boxes. Um, so these these police boxes, uh, they've been around USC for a while now, but um, it's starting to get to the point where uh, it's starting to cost a lot of money to repair these things. And with uh, new things such as like the Rave Guardian app that almost anyone on campus can have, um, people are starting to wonder why do we still have these? Because um, you'll walk around campus and see a few and then the next five you walk by have little repair out of order uh, mats on them or, or stickers on them. But um, so yeah, Reisenberg said uh, 
quote, the way they're built into the ground that they're actually uh, standing out would require us to dig up huge portions of roads and things like that in order to fix them. So the feasibility of getting blue boxes fixed as they go out of order is very low. So as these things are starting to go out of order, they're kind of just not even worried about trying to fix them. Um, uh, one, one thing that I just think about is like, I've never used one and I've never seen one being used, but the thing is like, if there's one that could help somebody, like that could make the difference, you know, about something like if somebody's phone is dead and they don't have access to the this Rave Guardian app. But does it matter if their phones are dead if the boxes are broken? Exactly. So, I mean, I think for me, I just raises a big question of if they're not, because I have seen them out there fixing them. Yeah. Um. Every once in a while. I have to, yeah. But if they're not going to make a massive effort to fix it, it does seem like it would be better for them to just phase them out. Yeah. Um, one, one thing that um, Patrick Ellis said, uh, he's Speaker of the Senate here at USC currently, um, he said, I think it's a conversation that needs to be addressed. I think there's a lot of utility in having those blue lights, and I would love to see them stay, but something I know that USCPD has shared is very low usage rates. Um, he said, I do think that one call is worth keeping the infrastructure. Um, but if it, I don't know if it's not. I wonder where those low rates come from. If that comes from yeah. people just not needing them, which is a good thing. Right. Yeah. Or if it comes from people not being able to use them. Yeah. Are people even using them though? Well, I feel like at the, mo well, I feel like at the moment, people really can't use them because you have to happen to be in a crisis where there's one working. Right. And I feel like most people in a crisis just aren't going to stand next to a call box. I feel like they're going to use their phones, you know? But if your phone's dead, that is a... That's true. true. A, a lot of places on campus, however, have, like, if you're walking, there's usually a pretty safe place you can duck into. And they don't immediately think, let me get this call box. Right. They think, let me duck into this dorm where there's people. Definitely. Uh, and I think the, the w one of the really good things that the call boxes have is that if you're running, you can press every button along the way, and that way SCPD can track you mm -hmm. um, in the direction you're going. But if there's a break in that link because of a missing call box or because of a broken call box, I think it's a really big um, cripple. cripple yeah, cut off. Cut yeah. Off. Yep. Yeah. It's bad. But but see the thing is like if you're using the Rave app, you turn on your GPS and they can like see you live. Yeah. They can know exactly where you are. Do you have the Rave app? Uh I believe so. Do you have the Rave app? I do. I don't have the oh wow. Okay, I don't have it. <laughs> you should get it. It's free. I, I know it's free. I've never like I've never felt in danger on campus. I've also, um, the Rave app, lots of people don't know this. Uh when you download it, you can't just like download it and have it. You got to put in your phone number and put in some information. So a lot of people just download it and then don't do anything with it until they think they're going to need it. So if, if you have the Rave app, make sure you actually go into it and log in and stuff. Because PSA right there. Yeah, because if, you if, you, if you're not logged in or anything, you're going to be typing in and logging in, making making all your credentials and stuff in, during your crisis. And that's no fun. the bad guy to hold off so we can yeah. set up our account. Mm. But speaking of accounts... All right. Um, at 9 p.m. Tuesday, student government hopefuls announced their candidacies. 
Mental health and student outreach are the leading platforms for most of the candidates. And over the next two weeks, candidates will continue to campaign leading up to the elections beginning on February 26th. And you can see most of the candidates on Green Street as they have most of their campaign official photos plastered up on the Green Street walls. You do, I have seen those. I have seen them too. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering where all of these uh, campaign pictures and stuff like, because there's like, there's like flyers and stuff on walls and stuff like everywhere. Yeah. And where like they're getting them printed or where they're getting the posters made. No, 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 just like like the flyers like for their campaign, like Patrick Ellis's forward his and like they're all but it seems like to be a group of people doing forward. It's not just like yeah. Patrick Ellis, it's like a group of people. So I wonder how mm-hmm. they're all linked. Like why is it just a few people are doing a forward type of campaign and then some people aren't. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, everyone has different oh. campaign platforms. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, th- they're probably like campaigning together-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I know. Um, I mean, like a vice president and a president would have similar platforms. Even though, like, I guess a vice president doesn't really campaign. Is there like a team? Yeah. It's like a team. Speaking but of teams. <laughs> Tennessee versus USC faced off for a second time in less than three weeks. USV, USC faced top-ranked Tennessee during Super Bowl week when the Volunteers pulled a clean lead, finishing 92 to 70. And won 92 to 70. Tennessee forward Admiral Schofield scored 24 points and won his match up against USC's Keyshawn Bryant, who unbelievably was scoreless in 10 minutes on the paint and action. The game is at 6:30 tonight, so get out and support the Gamecocks. Go Cox! Go Cox. Cox. Spurs up. I'm not a really big sports person. Yeah. I mean, it would be know. good if USC could win tonight. I think we need to go on a winning streak for a while. About time. I, mean, I think geez. it's always good when we win. Is it ever a bad thing? No. Never. I know um, one of our basketball players, um, one of our basketball players that uh, also plays football for us, um, just recently dipped out of the uh, basketball scene to focus on football. I know you could oh, you could do that. Cool. Yeah, you, you can play two sports at one time. Totally, I be. I, I would never be able to do that in college, especially Ooh, with the like amount of a- academics plus well, two college sports. I mean, sports. yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I'm not. I, I know you can do it in high school, but I know that you could do it in college. Because I feel like sports in general are just year-round in college. Because if you're not competing and you're in the off-season, you're you're rigorously training. Right. So. Training, gearing up for the season. Sports. Go sports. Go sports. Well, we will be right back in just a moment after this quick break. Thank you for being with us today, Daniel. Your research has given you an insight into how radio can be used to counter violent extremist organizations. Can you tell us a little about your work and what radio can do to promote dialogue and peaceful coexistence? Yes, I've been very lucky to do field work uh, with the USAID and other U.S. government agencies who are trying to reduce violent extremism in the Sahel uh, and other areas in Africa. And I think the results from our research are very positive. We see that radio programming and radios are not a silver bullet. They don't solve every problem, but they have measurable impact and reducing a number of the factors that we believe might encourage individuals to support uh, violent extremist acts or terror groups. And we, we found, especially because radios themselves 
are widely available technology and because radio waves and radio programming themselves are also relatively accessible across the area. Uh, we believe broadly that this can be a powerful policy tool used by people around the world, whether in developed or developing countries, to further uh, peace building and, uh, and conflict reparation. Okay. And compared to other media, what is the distinctive feature of radio that contributes to peace building? Well, uh, several things about radio. You know, first of all, unlike other attempts at, for example, reconciliation or face-to-face -face work or focus groups, radio doesn't require the, the individuals participating to be in the same location. And especially for areas that are underserved by government, they don't have infrastructure or strong roads, uh, radios can reach populations in very remote areas. Uh, for example, women who may not be allowed by cultural norms or by local institutions to leave their home can get access to radio. In fact, a number of the communities that we worked in, in fact, had women's listening groups deliberately developed to help broaden that audience there among a group of individuals who otherwise would not be able to go, for example, to a local NGO or to a local school. So that was a, a powerful way to reach them. It's also quite powerful because it doesn't matter if the population with your speaking is literate or illiterate. A lot of the more sophisticated materials being developed in this field of peace building and conflict resolution do require uh, some level of education. Radio programming does not. As, as long as the individuals in the community are being spoken to in a language they understand, it doesn't require them to have education beforehand. Uh, and, and more broadly, we think radio itself, the informal nature of radio listening, uh, allows uh, the, the program to be more powerful. Uh, people can listen and have multiple broadcasts, so it can be at different times. Uh, it's also quite cost-effective. So we think those reasons together make it a very strong medium to use. And from your experience, how can radio initiatives better tackle violent extremism in the future? So a lot of things that we need to do. Uh, you know, one is to make sure, for example, that the programming is done by uh, experts in the field. This might be an imam in a community that is, for example, served by uh, a Muslim uh, religious group. It might be uh, in places that are more right-wing extremism. It might be a, a priest or a, or a monk, uh, someone who's trusted by the area. So that's one aspect of the process is that we need to have voices on the radio that are listened to, and of course, speaking in the local language. But we, we found that these kind of broadcasts really do, uh, especially over a period of six months to a year, alter the norms and attitudes of people who are listening. Uh, to the degree, for example, that uh, broader support uh, for counter-terrorist activities, um, support for the use of uh, violence in the name of religion, uh, those kind of powerful indicators can be mollified uh, by this kind of programming. And we've also found yeah, more broadly that NGOs, local NGOs, can do this by themselves. They don't need to have international uh, organizations helping them. You know, they know quite well what messages will resonate with local communities and also what the local challenges are, uh, which violent extremist groups, for example, might be most popular or most likely to recruit individuals or find support among them. So we would strongly encourage this radio programming to be a local bottom-up process where communities themselves develop their own forms of radio communication, their own programs, their own uh, based on this broader model. Okay, and during your research, are, are there any are there any components related to gender specific issues that come to your mind? So, I mean, there are, there are a number of, uh, of of gender specific components that we've seen. You know, first of all, we know in, in some communities in Africa, at least, uh, women are often uh, married to, uh, for example, members of a violent extremist group. Uh, the Von Extremist Group will approach local families and ask um, and, and provide some kind, of some kind of funds, for example, in exchange for marriage in, into that family. 
and that will uh, create a bond between them and families in the area and make it more difficult for authorities, for example, to, re- to reduce the, the group's presence in the area. So we know uh, already uh, that women, for example, can be used by violent extremist groups to solidify their social ties to communities. Uh, more broadly, women uh, are often the ones who notice radicalization in children first, uh, you know, whether it's at home or in, in a school or, or anywhere else in the community. Oftentimes women are more perceptive about changes in behaviors and attitudes. So they can work as a bellwether uh, and be the first person to, to warn either authorities or their children or to talk to local authorities, uh, religious leaders, about that question. And, and more broadly, um, you know, especially since in many societies that we work in, uh, you know, women themselves can be recruited, uh, not just married into a group, but recruited into the organizations. Uh, their participation is really critical in these kind of groups. So in that sense alone, it's very important that NGOs, uh, age groups and so forth, will think clearly about how they can engage uh, women and, and, and uh, gender groups in this process. Uh, this year's World Radio Day is celebrating the theme of dialogue, tolerance, and peace. What would your World Radio Day message be? That you know, radio programming has a tremendous potential uh, across the world in developing developing countries to reduce support and participation in violent extremist groups, whether on the right or on the left. And I think it's uh, the growing body of research is showing how important it is we adopt what we call these softer developmental approaches to countering violent extremism, rather than envisioning that our only policy tools available in this field might, for example, be. Uh, ballistic tactics uh, using battlefield strikes or drone strikes. Uh, we think that this is a, a great way to assist communities to develop a broad set of skills via rated programming, among which would be the reduction in support for these violent extremist groups. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today, Daniel. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazarowitz, and this is Climate Connections. In Richmond, Virginia, teens are measuring the heat in their neighborhoods and developing projects to cool them off. Jeremy Hoffman of the Science Museum of Virginia leads the Throwing Shade in RVA program. It began last year as a partnership with Groundwork RVA, a nonprofit that works with youth to green the city. He says the teens first experiment with models, a heat lamp, and infrared thermometers to see how roads and buildings quickly heat up in the hot sun. Then we actually go out on a tour of the city, and we get in the big white van and drive around, and then they use thermal cameras, and they actually identify the surfaces that are doing that in the real world. Finally, the students design solutions. Last year, they planted three peach trees to provide food and shade. It's not enough to affect citywide temperatures, but Hoffman says the program prepared the teens to take on bigger projects in the future. We saw the students change in front of our eyes. Not only did they become advocates for health equity, climate equity in the city of Richmond, but they became better equipped to use and understand science in their lives. I think that is by far the most important impact of this work. All right, folks, the rest of your night will be pretty humid, but there shouldn't be too much rain. The low tonight is 34, and tomorrow you can expect a high of 76 and a low of 43. Don't be too excited, though, because if you have an 8 a.m., you can expect a crisp but sunny 36 in the morning. Man. I hate Carolina. Actually, I I don't want (laughs) to say that. Like, please, Carolina weather gods. 
you're you're pretty decent most of the time but just how we go from 36 at 8 a.m to like 73 at 2 p.m i don't know <laughs> i'll take it i'll take the 76 in other usc news carolina productions is presenting campus movie fest it is tonight at 7 30 you have an hour to get over to the russell house ballroom if you would like um you can walk down the red carpet and watch some student films as they debut at the campus movie fest premiere that is happening tonight from 7 30 to 9 30. additionally uh, carolina productions is going to present plants won't break your heart thursday february 14th from 11 a.m to 2 p.m out on davis field carolina productions um you can stop by to adopt a plant and take your new friend home then later on Friday from 8 to 10 p.m., Carolina After Dark will present Paint Your Night, a Friday Mardi Gras. You can join Carolina After Dark in the Russell House Ballroom for a paint night and get your creative juices flowing in a make it and take it event. Ooh. Lots happening. A ton of stuff going on. Sounds like a lot it's of fun. crazy. All right, well, we'll see y'all again on Friday from 6 to 6.30 or sooner. If you check us out on Facebook or Twitter, don't forget that you can go search WUSC News to find us there. And World Radio Day is today. And that broadcast that I told you we sent to Germany, it's up wherever you can find your pod your podcast if you just search Cockadoodle News. And also that broadcast that Germany sent to us, it's also up on podcasts wherever you get them if you just search Cockadoodle News. And in case you weren't aware, um, we did play the Germany podcast or the Germany broadcast today on our station and they played our broadcast on their station today. So, so cool. cool. All right. We'll see y'all later. This has been Cockadoodle News on WUSC. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook and tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 6 to 6.30 p.m.